Okay. This really, uh, what we've been talking about, this family that lost everything in the in a fire, has to do with the subject matter that we'll be going over tonight, which has to do with brotherly love. And we're going to look at that in detail in a moment. But first of all, we want to prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few minutes of silent prayer, a confession of sin to God if necessary. So let us pray. Father, we thank you for yet another day that we can come and recharge our spiritual batteries. We recognize that we cannot operate on our power. We weren't designed to. And indeed, you have given us the spiritual dynamics of this church age in order for us to execute your plan. But we can't do that in ignorance and we can't do it without your power. So we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we do that simply by acknowledging our sins to you. And then we are on the front burner with regards to learning, growing, and applying your word. So we pray that you will help us to function in that way. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7. We've just finished... At least two messages that we were dealing with eternal life in an experiential sense. And we completed that. Now we're going to continue with where we were before. It was a verse from Galatians chapter 6 verse 8 that said that we are to seek this eternal life through diligence in the, in the spiritual life. And that's what prompted us to go over this particular type of eternal life that the Bible mentions, which is dependent upon our effort producing human good. We don't have any questions on that before we press on, do we? Okay. I think probably the best thing to do is to... Read the verse first, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Now, some of you may have the notes already, but I have them up here if you want to follow along. God's people, God called His people not just to save them from the lake of fire, which of course He does, but also to clean them up so that they may enjoy the abundant life in time and inherit great riches in eternity. By the way, just for the sake of clarity, does God call only those that accept the gospel or does the call go out to everyone? That's an interesting question. It's one you need to be able to answer. Because there are those that say that God's call only goes to the elect, only those that are going to accept the gospel. But, of course, you all understand the doctrine of unlimited atonement, which means the call goes out to all people. And the call goes out in the form of the gospel. 
So God, God calls his people. Sometimes this word call, kaleo, this is actually ekkaleko, which means to call out. Sometimes it's used in a more individual sense. Sometimes it's used in a collective sense. But with regards to the calling of people to accept the gospel, it goes out to the entire world and not only to the elect. I just thought I would bring that out since you may be challenged in, on that in some day. So he just doesn't call us by the gospel in order to be saved from the lake of fire. No one goes to the lake of fire because, because God desires it to be that way. Nor does anyone go to the lake of fire because of their sin. And we've gone over a verse not too long ago, a couple of times, that would substantiate that. Is there anybody here that knows the address of that verse? No, I'm not talking about Romans 4 or 5. But that's good that you remember that. <laughs> no, Bible doctrine. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. For God was in Christ doing what? Reconciling the world to himself. See, that's reconciling the world, that is, in no way is that limited. Not counting their trespasses against them. Remember that? How important that is? That's a huge, in that verse, it's huge doctrine of unlimited atonement. 2 Corinthians 5.19. Okay, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5.19, and I want you to circle that verse if you haven't. <laughs> then, then we need to uh, keep going over it. Okay, verse starts in my New American Standard Version, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. In other words, the word of reconciliation is the gospel. When it says he has committed that to us, it means it's our responsibility to reach the lost through the gospel because he has committed to us the word of reconciliation, which is essentially a term that is referring to the gospel. See, you don't have to know a whole lot of scriptures. You don't have to memorize half a book in order to refute a lot of the heresies that are out and about. This is one right here. Whenever you make the statement that no one goes to hell for their sins, you better be ready, you better be ready to back it up because you're going to be challenged. This verse in itself will do it. Also, somebody mentioned earlier Romans 4 or 5. There's a, there's the, the, the basic verses like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you need to commit that to memory. And also Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6, 23, that's real easy. They're in, it's just different chapters with the same verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Free gift, free gift. 
The bad news is in Romans 3.23. The good news is in Romans 6.23. Now, these aren't hard to remember. I know, but I don't want to push it. <laughs> Talking about David, right? In Romans, uh, oh, second, well, that whole Second Corinthians chapter five will blow your doors off. I mean, that whole that whole chapter is just so powerful. It's got some wonderful verses in it. Titus three five, not of works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He has saved us. See, these are all these people that think you have to be good, you have to do something, go to heaven, which is going to be probably. 99 out of 100 people you run into that is outside this circle. You have to have those at the ready so when you make a dogmatic statement, and I hope you're making this statement to people, that nobody goes to hell for their sins, this is, this is flabbergasting to most people. If you haven't tried saying that to someone who thinks you have to work your way to salvation, just do it, if nothing else, just to see the excitement. See the see their pupils grow bigger. See them stiffen up, throw their chest out, and get ready for combat. See, this is spiritual combat, and you cannot fight it if you don't know at least a few basic scriptures. And these are the ones you should have at the ready at all times. And when you do, you'd be amazed at the confidence level you have. Just so if you if you could. Quote, five scriptures, you could undo probably 95 or, or more percent of the heresies that are out there. And the biggest one being that people think you have to do something in order to be saved other than believe in Jesus Christ. And that's the biggest one. Okay, let's get back to First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7. I got on this because I was talking about the call and the call going out to all people. By the way... Another one on your list should be 1 John 2.2. 2. For he is the propitiation for our sins, but not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. Propitiation means satisfaction. Christ's atonement satisfied God for the sins of the entire world. Therefore, God cannot hold anyone accountable in the sense of being condemned to the lake of fire for their sins because Christ has already taken care of that sin problem. And so people are normally going to ask, okay, then why do people go to hell if it's not for their sins? And it's, of course, because they've rejected the free gift of salvation. It's that simple. This is so fundamental, and yet I don't know how many people, how many believers are fundamentally prepared to address these issues and stand firm and quote these few scriptures to people. And when they say, yeah, but, you say, wait a minute, we're not going to, yeah, but anything. Explain to me, when you read, or when you quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, or Romans 6, 23, where it's talking about a free gift, and it's not of works, like in Ephesians 2, 9, lest you boast. Now, you think it's by works, and you're trying to sidestep this verse. This verse says it isn't. Now, is the, is the Bible wrong here, or are you wrong? It's got to be one or the other. Let's not dance around this. Explain this to me. How can it be works when the Bible says it's not of works and it's a gift? Explain that to me. You have to nail them down or they will slither right out from under you as if these verses really are peripheral and they have no impact. 
So when you go to these verses and somebody tries to slither out from under them, don't let them do it. So you explain to me before we go anywhere else, you're saying it's of works. This is saying it's not of works. We have a problem here, Houston. What are we going to do about it? Is the Bible wrong or are you wrong? Uh, you don't have to use those same words. Sometimes I'm a little over-intimidating when I use these scriptures, but I think sometimes that's okay. I mean, these are powerful scriptures. And so when God calls his people, he has called everyone through the gospel. But here he's not calling uh, uh, just in the sense of the lake of fire. He also has called, he said, us. Who is the us? Who is he talking to? Believers. So he calls believers not just to save them, but he calls them there's a purpose behind that calling. And the calling here is referencing for the purpose of, he did not call us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So when a believer lives a life free from the corruption of this earth, availing himself of the grace assets God has provided him, God is glorified. God isn't glorified just because uh, you accepted the gospel. He is to a degree, but that's just the start, or it should be the start. The real magnification comes with regards to glorification is as you live your life, you make decisions that are going to experientially set you apart. The more he is able to bless you right in the devil's world, right under his nose, and Satan can't do a thing about it, the more he's glorified. Satan hates it when believers are honored by God. Because when believers are honored by God, it also glorifies God and Satan can't stand it. And the best way and the most proficient way that Satan has of keeping believers from glorifying God is to distract them from growing in grace and knowledge. It's just like Carrie and I were talking about this on the way here. You don't have to have a whole lot of plans. All you got to do is have a plan or two that works and keep using it over and over. It's just like we as a nation have continued to lose our freedoms at an alarming rate because the, the government continued to use the same plan, the same ploy. Well, it's for your own good. It's, 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 we know best, and we have to do this, it's for your own good, and then they say uh, sometimes they'll throw the fear factor on top of that. Well, the economy is going down the pits, and if we don't bail out all the big, big cats on Wall Street, then it's going to be worse. And that's all they said. The fear card was played, and it goes right along. Well, Satan is no different. He, he doesn't have a whole lot of plans for us, I mean, at least workable plans. And so his main plan with regards to believers to keep them from glorifying God and receiving more and more of these abundant blessings in time and eternity is just distract them. Bring their spiritual momentum to a halt. And I can assure you, if you're not consistently taking in God's Word on a daily basis, your spiritual momentum is in jeopardy. It's in danger. And when your spiritual momentum, when it ceases, then a vacuum is created in your soul and you start sucking in the satanic lies, and that's what Satan wants. So it's not a hard plan. I mean, we all should be able to, to recognize it in, a, in an instant all he, he doesn't have to lure you into doing some kind of 
gross sin. All he's got to do is dangle something out in front of you that is attractive to you, something that you might like more than taking in the Word. And the next thing you know, he's done it. And in, in our context of this verse, he's talking about sexual impurity, sexual immorality. And this, by the way, is not just a temptation for unbelievers. This is just as much a temptation to believers as it is to those who are unbelievers. So don't think that once you've accepted the gospel and you're born again, you're going to heaven, that you are exempt from these things. Who is he writing to? Believers. And what is he telling them? He's warning them. You better learn how to possess your vessel. You better learn how to control your body. Because who is waiting, ready to drop the hammer? The Lord is. Remember, He is an avenger of such things. That's the context of what we're seeing here. So He's underscoring this by saying we were not called for this purpose of impurity. And for us, it doesn't resonate as much as it did to them. The isagogics of this verse is cries out that they were used to going, walking right past the pagan temple where prostitution was part of their ritual. And you could go there any time of day or night and you could pick out what your particular pleasure may be. Whether it was a boy or a girl, horrendous things that I can't even mention, but that was part of their pagan worship. And it was accepted by society. Many of these believers had been in that type of routine. And now he's telling them, God didn't call you for that. He called you for something else. He called you for sanctification. And I don't know how many believers hear that word, and it sounds like nice word. It's a nice word. It's a very holy word. And it's true, it is a holy word. In fact, holy is the same Greek word. But they don't recognize that it means set apart for special blessing. And you're not set apart for special blessing when you get into this sexual impurity. So a holy life demonstrates God's supernatural power at work to overcome what is natural and that which glorifies God. It overcomes what is natural. The natural is the impurity, the sexual immorality. And when you overcome those urges, those temptations, then that is glorifying to God. When a believer fails to control his or her sexual lust, it circuits the supernatural power that was working in them or in him and brings on troubles and the possibility of divine discipline. So what I'm saying is this is a warning because you cannot get into this sexual impurity without short-circuiting the supernatural power that God has made available to, available to us in order to conquer these things. One of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And it's not just self-control in lusts. It's self-control in a, in a lot of matters. It's self-control not only of how much you eat, but what you eat. Your body is a temple. And it's a self-controlling factor that when you say, well, that might be fine, but I'm just going to give in to my lust and go for the gusto. When you do that, it's just like the lights go out in your spiritual life. 
has nothing to do with the soteriological aspects of your life, of going to heaven, but has everything to do with your purpose here on earth afterwards, which is to glorify God. You can't glorify God and satisfy your lust at the same time. Verse 8. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 8. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting, this is a verb, present, active, indicative, is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. There's always consequences when one rejects the clear teaching of Scripture. And sexual purity is simply a practical application of basic doctrine. We know that we're not supposed to have sex with anyone other than our spouse. We know that we're not in to, get, to get into all of the degrading, the horrendous sexual perversions that are around. And that might not be a particular weakness that you have, but there are believers that have these weaknesses. This is their area of weakness that they might uh, get involved in. And this is saying that there's always consequences. It's, and this isn't hard to understand. It's not a matter of this is a difficult doctrine. It's a matter of volition. When a person rejects the teaching of sexual purity, he is rejecting the one who gave it, which is God. Most people have an independent nature are used to doing whatever they want and don't like someone else telling them what to do. Would you agree to that? I think I'm looking at a lot of those people. In fact, there's a mirror up there to show me that this thing's on. I can go up here and I can see another one in that mirror up there. Me. They are especially sensitive when it comes to moral issues of purity. Have you ever noticed that? I have a, a marriage book that's coming out um, next month, it's already at the printers, and I'm curious as to how uh, this is going to be accepted. I'm not worried about how it's going to be accepted. I know that what's in it is true, but I don't pull any punches. And right on the very first page, I address the issue of people who have ignored the mandates of God and who have decided that we're in a very sophisticated modern age and we no longer need to be married. It just puts certain encumbrances on a person that isn't necessary. And so we have a host of believers who are shacking up. And I blast away at it. Now what usually happens is when someone, and I know this is going to happen, there's going to be some people that are shacking up and they're going to get their hands on this book and they're going to go and read that first page and there's going to be a meltdown somewhere. They are going to either be humbled by the Word of God or they are going to be furious. And I expect some feedback from some of these people. But, of course, I'm using Scripture. So they're not arguing with me, they're arguing with God. But what I'm telling you is this is a very sensitive, volatile issue. It's like they're hiding in the dark over here, and the Word of God is like a spotlight. It's going shh like this, and boom, right on that dark area that they're living in. And it, when they're exposed, they don't take it kindly. And rather than being, usually they're not malleable, they're not 
ready to recognize their wrongdoing, they're going to defend their position and they're going to be angry at whoever is pointing that light at them. And that's what we do. The Word of God is just like a searchlight everywhere. And it comes, it's on us also. There's no one that has any preference before God. It's, it, that light goes everywhere. And how you react to that light or whether you respond to that light is going to essentially determine for many where they're going to spend eternity and for many others how they're going to spend eternity. So it's a very sensitive area. Paul reminded them in verse 3, that's in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, that it was God's will that they abstain from sexual immorality. Go ahead and look. I know some of y'all are doing it anyway. Go to verse 3 and look at it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. I'm still over here in 2 Corinthians 5. 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 4 and verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, you abstain from sexual immorality. He has already made it clear, this is His will. Now, He tells them, this is Paul telling these Thessalonians, He tells them if someone rejects this and fornicates or commits adultery anyway, he is not rejecting a statute or an opinion of man, but a directive from God Himself. See, he's putting on the heat here. He's saying this isn't just your... This is, by the way, this happens to be the standard rebuttal to someone who says, well, there is no legitimate sex outside of marriage, period. Where are they going to go to? Well, they're going to go to the standard phrase you've heard so often today. Well, consenting sex between adults, there's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to be married as long as it's adults. And we've degenerated to the point now to where they're not saying it, but they really are in so many words. They're saying that uh, consensual adult, I mean, consensual sex between those who are not adults is okay as long as they practice safe sex. That's where we've degenerated to today. And you think that we're stopping at that point in degeneration? I mean, we've already, for the most part, we, saying as a, a collective nation, have already accepted the idea of marriage between two men and two women. And once that door has been thrown open, why not marry a monkey? Why not marry your dog? Why not marry... Ten different partners. I mean, once you get away from God's standard, why, why limit it at any point? If you think that it's, it's going to stop once they get the, the approval, the legal approval for two homosexuals or two lesbians to marry, and you think, well, at least it'll stop there. It's not going to stop. It never does. It continues to degenerate because that's man's nature. And the, and the, and the nation that accepts this, has never survived. There's two things that God will not tolerate in a nation for all that long. One of them is the acceptance of homosexuality, and the other one is anti-Semitism. 
and the national graveyard of nations who have gone down and have been rebuked and really lost their national status and have been overtaken by other countries on those two, those two points. It's kind of a scary thought when you look, read the newspapers, isn't it? Well, I don't know how many of you read newspapers anymore. Your uh, blogs or um, Twitters or... <laughs> uh, I'm saying words I'm not even sure what they are. <laughs> I know they're out there. Uh, somebody sent me a Twitter online, and I said, please don't send me any more Twitters because I don't know what they are. I don't know how to find them. I don't know how to answer them. I don't know how to Twitter anyone. So, and blogs, blogs. I mean, why don't we get some better words than Twitter and blogs? I don't know. <laughs> Okay, now he now he tells them that someone rejects and fornicates, they're in big trouble. That's what he's warning here. Some people believe it's possible. Some people believe it is impossible to control their sexual urges. So this verse reminds us that God has given us the Holy Spirit, and it's through His power that we are able to control ourselves. Do you understand that? We're talking about believers here. Some believers find it uh, impossible apart from the Holy Spirit to control themselves. But here's the point. Every believer is able to respond to the Holy Spirit. The issue is, will you? How many believers have the Holy Spirit, by the way? Every one of them, right? That's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Does every believer have the filling of the Holy Spirit? I don't even know if in this small group of believers here, if everybody has the filling of the Holy Spirit. I know you all have the indwelling because it doesn't matter what you might be thinking. You still have the indwelling. But how many of you have the filling of the Holy Spirit? Hopefully all of you. But there may be some whose mind is off on who knows what. Maybe you've planned a vacation to Tahiti and that's all you can think about. I don't know. But it's possible for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's, it's a matter of volition is what it's about. And that can becomes really important, as we'll see in a few moments. We're going to go to Galatians 5 in just uh, a few moments. But before we do, I want to tell you that I went to a website today called CASA. I guess it's CASA or it might be COSA. COSA dot, I mean, COSA-recovery.org. And the COSA stands for Codependence of sexual addicts. Now, this is I've, I've quoted this right off their website. COSA is a 12-step recovery program for men and women whose lives have been affected by another person's compulsive sexual behavior. See that? Well, I'm trying to use my gizmo, but it's not working. <laughs> this is why I don't use it, Ken, is because I get into point and I'm doing what it's supposed to do, and it's not doing it. Oh, there it is. Okay. Uh, 
Where am I looking for now? <laughs> oh, here it is. Compulsive sexual behavior. That's what I wanted to see. Okay, compulsive sexual behavior. Is there really such a thing as compulsive sexual behavior? Compulsive means you have no choice. I mean, it's something that uh, you're compelled to do. And it goes on. Adapted from the Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, COSA is a program for our spiritual development, no matter what our religious beliefs. Did you catch that one? Huh? You see, what, what I'm going to show you is these people are nibbling around the edges to the answers, but they're fundamentally flawed because it says it's a spiritual development. The program is for our spiritual development. And then I say, okay, great. We all need to have our spirituality developed, right? But then they say, no matter what our religious beliefs are. Well, that seems strange. As we meet to share our experience, strength, and hope, while working the 12 steps, we grow stronger in spirit. Well, they say they grow stronger in spirit. At least they didn't say the spirit. We begin to lead our lives more serenely and in deeper fulfillment. Little by little, one day at a time, only in this way can we be of help to others. And then it says, uh-oh, it's getting me back. You get it? <laughs> it says it's an anonymous 12-step fellowship, self-supported through weekly voluntary contribution of members and not affiliated with outside organizations, including treatment centers, religious religions, or therapy. Now, I have, I don't have it on the board, but I have their 12-step program, and I checked some others. Uh, I also went to the Sexual Addiction Anonymous. Uh, no, is it, yeah, Sexual, no, Sexual Addict, Addicts Anonymous. And they had the same 12-step program. And this is similar to the Alcohol Anonymous uh, program. So, anyway, here it is. These are the 12 steps. And you'll see what I was talking about. And I, I'm not trying to belittle this organization. It's, it's, they're trying to help people. But the problem is they really don't have anything but a human solution. And the solution to our problems does not come from humans. It comes from God himself. And when you get away from his solutions and you try the human solutions, they're weak, they're anemic, they simply are not powerful enough. They're not right, essentially. So here's the first one. It says, we admitted we were powerless to overcome compulsive sexual behavior, that our lives had become unimaginable. That's point number one that they have to admit. Now, I want you to think about that just a minute. I'm not going to rush through this. I want you to think about it. Are we, as believers, indeed powerless over compulsive behaviors, whether it's sexual addiction or anything else? Is that true for believers? I'm glad I see a lot of heads nodding horizontal like this. Because we're going to, we, I said we're going to go to Galatians 5. We'll go to Galatians 5 and we'll prove it. There's no, in fact, the Bible says if you do come under the power of something else, then you're off track. 
Because a believer who is filled with the Holy Spirit, growing in grace, learning and trusting Christ, learning the Word of God, applying it, then there is nothing that's more powerful that is going to come, that they're going to fall into the clutches of whatever it may be. Number two, the second step is uh, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, is that true? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I'm glad they came to that realization. They're on the right track. They're, they're, they're finding that I can't handle this myself. Now, I don't, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of believers right now because this is, was written to believers. Um, there is a solution, but it's not within our own power. It doesn't have to be something like a, a, an addiction. It can be just loving someone unconditionally. You can't love someone you don't. How can you love someone you don't like? Huh? How can you do that? You can't do it under your own power. But God will give you the power. We love because he first loved us. This is in 1 John. Then the next thing you know, we're reciprocating our love towards him. And one way we do it is we are enabled to love some jerk over here, somebody that we just vibrate every time we get around. But he gives us the power and the ability to not vibrate anymore, to pray for that person, not have un these mental attitude sins against this person. He enables us to do that. Apart from that, we would continue to hate him. Now, you can be a hypocrite and try to be nice to the person and bake them a blueberry pie and take it to them and all, but inside is where it matters. You're thinking, here's your blueberry pie. <laughs> Hope you choke on it. I mean, well, that's what you're thinking. What good is that? Huh? People do, people do that all the time. Oh, they're the nicest neighbors. Yeah, they brought it up. What they're trying to do is get in good with God. So here's your blueberry pie. And the whole time they're thinking about it, you SOB. I remember all these things you did. And I hope you choke on it. But I'm doing, I'm doing the right thing. Number three. They made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. If they stopped there, I would say, Okay. They mentioned God, but here's the rest of the sentence. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand God. That's the last part. Number um, four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of our lives. That's good. We all ought to do that. We as believers ought to do that every single day. Take inventory. Where are we? Are we in fellowship? We're out of fellowship? Are we holding a grudge? Are we worried? What's the deal? Let's stay, stay current on our fellowship with God. Number five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Well, again, good. Admit it to God. That would be acknowledging our sins. To ourselves means that we recognize we're not conning God, but to other human beings, the exact nature of our wrongs? Mm, I don't think so. Uh, dump all your garbage on God and leave it off of other people. Because your garbage and my garbage stinketh. And it might make you feel good because you unload all your garbage on someone else. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they feel good about it. And you may cause them to sin. 
We don't acknowledge our sins to other people. We acknowledge them to God. Now, it's true if, you haunt, if you've hurt someone, if you've offended them or whatever, and you go to them and say, hey, I was a complete jerk. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I'm acknowledging. I've already acknowledged it to God, but I want to acknowledge it to you because I want a relationship with you. I don't want to be on the other side of the fence from you. And I want to reconcile. And so all I can do is tell you I'm sorry for what I did. Uh, I apologize. Will you accept my apology? Something along those lines. But you don't do that all. Use a little discernment. You might go up to someone and tell them, you know, I've been having a grudge against you for 10 years. And I made a voodoo doll and every other night I stick pins in it thinking about you. But now I feel so good now that I've told you. And this person is going, <laughs> use a little discernment. And they feel, yeah, people have told me, this is one of the steps. I knew someone was telling me he, was, he came to me, was going to tell me something. I said, I don't want to hear it. Don't tell me. I like you. I want to keep liking you. Don't tell me. Number six. We were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Well, they were ready for that. But here, see, here's the whole thing. What God? It says, as you understand him to be. Well, are you a Muslim? Is it Allah that you're doing this to? Are you a Hindu? Are you a Buddhist? The Buddhists, Buddhists are weird. It's a weird, they call it a religion, but they don't, they don't even have a God. It's a the the highest plane is to not have any desires whatsoever, something they call nirvana. And when you reach that, it's kind of like a god status. It's a bunch of of uh, nonsense. So number seven, humbly ask God to remove our shortcoming. Do you have to? And let me ask you something. I hope y'all all get this right. Do you have to ask God to remove your shortcomings? Is that how we get back in fellowship with God? Is that what the Bible says? No, it does not. It says to acknowledge the sin. You don't have to ask God to forgive you. And some people say, well, that's pretty audacious. That seems pretty arrogant to me that you just acknowledge something and expect God to forgive you. Do we go by what somebody thinks sounds good or do we go by what the Bible says? So you don't have to ask, and probably all of you have been around people who are believers, they're, they've gone to church for their entire lives sometimes, and they end their prayer, and, and Lord, forgive us of our sins. Will you please forgive us of our sins? And that is simply a prayer that is spoken out of ignorance, because that is not how a church-age believer gets back into fellowship with God. You acknowledge it. Now, I do like the humble part here. It says, humbly ask. When you acknowledge your sin, by the way, you are being humble. And that's what God wants. He cannot have a relationship with you if you are arrogant. And so that's what the idea is. When you, when you acknowledge your sins, you're humble. You recognize that uh, God has already taken care of that sin. But you have to take, take responsibility for it. In the experiential sense. Number eight, we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. 
Aren't you glad that, what if this, what if I was reading to you the modus operandi for church age believers? We would all have to get busy, wouldn't we? Some of us would have to get more memory on our hard drive to make this list. I know I would. And it would not be a fun task to go to all persons we have harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. What does it mean willing to make amends? What if somebody says, okay, you want to make amends with me? Okay, you, you were responsible for me losing a deal that was uh, $50,000. Just give me $50,000 and we'll call it good. What? Aren't you glad that that's not the way that we get back in fellowship with God? That we have to make amends. You know what making amends is? It's that word that I detest. You know, that word that around Lent, I get real surly. Penance is trying to make amends. And it is repugnant to God. Number nine. Made direct amends to people, to such people, wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Number ten. Continue to make, to take personal inventory and we... When we were wrong, promptly admit it. Well, that's a good idea. That's part of humility. Number 11, we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood God. Praying only for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry it out. You see, this is sad to me. These 12 steps are talking about things that believers do, Christians do, born-again believers in order to get back in fellowship with God, to tap into the Holy Spirit power in order for God to work through us so that it, and the enabling power that God gives us, but they don't have it. They're not talking about God the Father. They're not talking about Jesus Christ. You could go here and be a Buddhist. You could be anything you want to be. Actually, it could be another person. You might... Idolize your next door neighbor and think, I'll just, I think he's a higher power than I am. I think I'll worship him. Number 12. Having had a spiritual awakening. Boy, I would like to talk to some people about what this spiritual awakening is all about. You know, there are other spirit beings other than God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And sometimes a spiritual awakening can be fallen angels. You have to be very careful. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all areas of our lives. See, this is, this is altruistic. It's, uh, it's well-meaning. But they're missing the boat. You understand? It's, it, it, to me, I, I just it just makes me so sad for people who are have the right ideas, but they're not going to the right person. They think that they are able to go through. You know, it doesn't say it here, but it says one of the main things that they're depending on is each other. They said this. They make this acknowledgement. This twelve-step problem will not work without depending on the others, because what you don't have, you have to depend on others. Cursed is the man who trusts man rather than God. Now, skeptics believe that it's a myth, myth that 
the phenomenon exists as a disease or disorder at all and is instead a byproduct of cultural and other influences. I got that off of Wikipedia when I was looking at sexual addictions. So, I'm not, we'll, we'll have time to go to, uh, let's just go to Galatians chapter 5 real quick because I want to go there for at least just a moment. I'm going to close with those scriptures right there. Because we've been talking about this compulsive sexual behavior. And I'm telling you that for the believer, there's no such thing. And I'm going to show you in the Scriptures right here. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. <laughs> That's a pretty good start, isn't it? And by the way, that walk by the Spirit is a command. If God commands us to do something, then He certainly gives us the wherewithal in order to do it. For the flesh set this desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Sounds to me like it's very close to saying you better possess your vessel. You better control yourself, your behavior, and you are able to do it. And it says that the flesh and its desires are against the Spirit. There's a clash going on, and I have bad news for you. It's going to last until you die. Whatever your particular brand of lust might be, and every one of you good, pious-looking people have one or more, just like I do, whatever that propensity in your life is, you will battle it until the day that you die. But the fact that you are battling it is good. It's when the battle, when there is no battle, it doesn't mean that you're winning. It means you've lost. You've already given in. Verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, and by the way, that's a first-class conditional clause that he was writing, meaning if, and it's true, they were, uh, and this is being led is the passive voice. You know, this is something that you receive. If you're being led for the Spirit, you are not under the law, the Mosaic law. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, and by the way, when it says uh, the flesh here, it's referring to your old sin nature. And just in case you don't know what the deeds of the flesh are that are battling against those of the Spirit, it's going to give us a little list here. The first one is immorality. That is uh, pornonia, fornication in some translations, impurity, sensuality. Who's he, who is he writing again? Believers, right. Yeah, okay. Just want to make sure I remembered that. Idolatry, sorcery, drug, that's drug addiction, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, Disputes, dissensions, heresies, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this of which I forewarned you, just as I, as I have forewarned those who practice such things, 
shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, some people get really upset over this. We, I don't. I am so glad that I've taught this. I've got a booklet with, that talks about this. If you're guilty of any of these these sins, which I'm sure that every one of you are guilty of at least one. Don't try to tell me you've never had an outburst of anger. Because if you do, you might cause me to have one. If you practice these things, then you shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven, a uh, kingdom of God. This does not say, by the way, you will not inhabit it. It says you will not inherit it. We know the difference between these. Every believer is going to inhabit heaven. Only winter believers who have grown in grace and knowledge and have overcome are going to be rewarded, and part of that reward is a super grace inheritance. That's what this verse is about. But furthermore, this is, it does it so it tells us these are the things of the flesh, and this list is what it's our nature to do these things. We don't have no one has to train us how to do it. We just by humans, by virtue of being humans with our old sin nature, these are the things that we gravitate to do. These are the things that we like to do. However, verse twenty two, what's the first word in verse twenty two? But contrast, big contrast there. The fruit of the spirit. Now we're going to get the other list. The decisions you make. If you're battling your weaknesses, which is what Paul was having the Thessalonians to do, if you're doing that, then you're going to uh, grow. If you're growing in grace and knowledge, studying and humbly seeking God, then this is what you can expect from the fruit of the, the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And there it is right there. Self-control. What does that mean? That means if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you can control yourself regardless of what the lust may be. Because it's the Holy Spirit that is empowering you to do so. If I had time, boy, I wish I got into this sooner because I'd go to Romans chapter 6. And Romans chapter 6 says, you have been crucified with Christ. What does that mean? Well, we weren't there with Christ, but what it means is the old sin nature was crucified along with Christ on the cross. And that means that you now are no longer under the dictatorial aspects of the old sin nature, which means that you can only have human good, which is unacceptable to God in your area of strength, or sin, which is in your weakness area. In other words... The old sin nature can no longer dictate to you because you were crucified with Christ, which means now you can have self-control. It's a matter of volition of whether you're going to respond to the Holy Spirit or whether you're going to reject or resist the Holy Spirit in an experiential way. When that happens, it's going to determine whether you're going to have self-control or not. So no, no believer can legitimately say, well, I can't help it. I'm overcome. I have an addiction. It's just a disease. Boring. Sin is what it is. And Christ not only delivered us from the power of sin, He has delivered us, uh, well, He hasn't only de uh, delivered us from the penalty of sin, He's also delivered us from the power of sin. When I did that, that whole uh, series on the MAD 
uh, the MAD series that was, had, had everything about that. Mechanics of applying doctrine is what it was all about. And for every thing that you are tempted, for every sin there is, there's another correlating doctrine that you can use and you, it's available to you and you have the, the, not only the power and the opportunity, but you have the duty to learn that doctrine, apply that doctrine, and it does away with that, that uh, temptation. And so we are culpable because God has given us the means to resist. And so all of this, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm out of time now, and I wish I'd have got this a little sooner, but what it amounts to is that nobody can say, well, it's, it's just a disease, it's overpowering, I can't do anything about it. If you're a believer, then you are not only ignorant, but you're in gross heresy, because there is nothing that was left out when Jesus Christ conquered sin on the cross and now has delivered us from the power of the old sin nature. We still have the old sin nature, but he delivered us from the power. And that means we can resist. It's a matter of volition. The Bible says we are not to do what we please to do. Every one of you have these lusts that we battle. However, it's your relationship toward God at any given minute as to whether you're going to respond to the Holy Spirit and have the enabling power to resist, I don't care what it is. Isn't that great? Well, this is, we have a great God. He didn't, he didn't leave any stone unturned. There's no trick that Satan can pull out of the hat that God hadn't already taken care of. And I'm very thankful for it. Well, we're out of time. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time that you have shined the light again in an area that we need to be reminded of. There's no excuses, no excuses. When we stand before you at the judgment seat of Christ, there is not a centimeter of ground that we can stand on to say, well, it's not our fault. It's all an issue of volition. We're so thankful that we can have self-control over our lives. Sometimes it seems difficult for us, but we have you to go to and pour out our soul, ask for help. You always have given us whatever we need in order to overcome. We're so thankful for that. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.